We today are wrapping up our study of the book of 1 Samuel. We have been been in 1 Samuel for, for quite a while now. And you'll note, if you've been following along, you'll know there are still a couple, several chapters left, but, but we're going to look at those chapters all together today, at this, at this final story of the fall of Saul and the ascension of David to the throne of Israel. That's, that's what the story of 1 Samuel has been about. It has been about the people who reject God and want a king like the other nations have and are given that in Saul. And then the, the downfall of Saul and the rise of David. So we're going to read just from the very end of 1 Samuel from chapter 31, 1 Samuel chapter 31, these are the first six verses. This is the description of the final end of Saul. Will you stand with me as we read God's word together? The Philistines fought against Israel, and Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons, Jonathan, Abadab, and Moshishua. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor-bearer would not do it because he was terrified. Then Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So on that day, Saul died together with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all of his men. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it. And live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we open your word today, as we look at this story of the final downfall of Saul and the ascension of your man David to the throne, God, I pray that you would illumine the text for us. Let us see the truth that is in it. As we read it and as we study it, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to start with something that might make you uncomfortable. And what it is, is this, that it is possible to be extremely active in the church and to not really know God at all. Now some might think that this is nonsense, right? I mean, 
how is that possible? How could a person not know God if they are active in God's church? But I want to ask you this question. Have you ever known anyone who was married for 20, 30, 40 years and didn't actually truly love their spouse? I think we've probably all known someone like that. You know, then another way is this. Another way to think about it is this. Say you go and, and you walk through the maternity ward in the hospital. It, are you suddenly now pregnant? No, of course not. Simply being, even living in the vicinity of where God is at work is no guarantee for relationship and intimacy with him. In fact, the Bible shows us over and over again, both in the Old Testament and in the New, that it is often those who are the most religiously active who find it the most difficult to truly know God. You remember, uh, not too terribly long ago, we studied the book, The Unsaved Christian, Dean and Sarah's book, The Unsaved Christians. We had a, a sermon series based on it. And, and, and I, I have come to believe the, the idea that Dean posits in that book, which is the largest group of unreached people in the United States are those who sit in pews and think they know God when they don't. And what we have in front of us, the, the, this story of Saul, and in particular, the, this end of Saul's story, shows us in graphic detail what self-deception leads to. The tragic end of Saul's life. What we see in 1 Samuel 27 through the very first chapter of 2 Samuel and it's important for us to remember, in our, in our English Bibles, we separate these into two books. But, but in, in the Hebrew Scripture, it's only one book. It's, it's Samuel, so, so that the break between First and Second Samuel is a little artificial. But what we see here, right, is it is this story of, of the last days of Saul, the, the, the final fall of Saul and the final rise of of David. It's an interesting and weird story. Go back today, this week, and read from chapter 27 through the first chapter of 2 Samuel, and you'll see what I mean. It starts with this. It starts with David leaving Israel, leaving Judah, and going and becoming a mercenary for the Philistines. Not what we would expect David to do, is it? In fact, he, he, ends up, he ends up sort of pledging allegiance to the king who's over the city of Gath. And the king gives Ziklag a, a whole city to David. And from Ziklag, David regularly raids into Judah and raids Judean cities. He's, like I said, he's become a mercenary. And as we're reading this, we might ask ourselves, who is this? This, this is the one that God wants to be king? What are we supposed to do with this? Is this what God wants? Is God sanctioning David's raids? And the answer to that is no. 
It's important for us to remember that just because God allows something, either in Scripture or in our own lives, just because God allows something does not mean that God is approving of it. Those are two different things. If we remember in the first chapter of Romans, right, it says that God turns people over to their evil desires. God is allowing it, but he does not sanction it. He does not approve of it. What we see in these last chapters of Samuel is this action is all David. If you go and you read chapter 27 closely and carefully, you will see that not once in David becoming this mercenary for the Philistines does he ever consult and talk with God. This is David acting on his own. And so what's beginning to happen is just as we have this giant question mark over Saul's kingship, we're starting to see the developing of a question mark over David's kingship. What kind of king is David going to be? It's important for us to remember that even though we will see in 2 Samuel that David becomes a good king, not perfect, but good, it's important for us to remember that even David is not the true king of God's people. That David is simply the king that points to the true king. For the true king will be Jesus. Because only Jesus will be able to serve as the king that God has chosen to bring blessing to all people. So, so this, this moment of David becoming this mercenary honestly should not surprise us because David is not the true and perfect king of God's people. But today, we're not going to focus on what David is doing. We're, we're going to focus on Saul. We're going we're to see how Saul's story ends, how Saul's story concludes you know, we've learned, I think, a lot from Saul over these last several months. Saul's story is for our instruction, just as David's story is. And so, we're going to see how Saul ends. The beginning of the end for Saul, we see in chapter 28, the very beginning of chapter 28, what we're told is we're told that, that Saul had early on in his kingship eradicated all of the mediums and necromancers and, and practicers of witchcraft in the kingdom. If any of you have ever watched the British show Merlin, that's how the story starts in Merlin, is that Arthur's father has gotten rid of all of the magic in the kingdom. That's what Saul has done. And then not unlike Uther Pendragon, Arthur's father, Saul comes to a point in time where he gets impatient. He's not hearing from God, and so he takes a bad shortcut. But what we see before that is what is it that's driving Saul, that's going to drive him to go against this very law that he has proclaimed. And it's the thing that drives so many of us so much of the time. 
It's fear. If we look in the fifth verse of chapter 28, we read this. When Saul saw the Philistine camp, he was afraid and his heart pounded. I love it when the scripture gives us. The, the, the author, right, could have just said, and Saul was afraid. But he gives us that added detail that, that his heart pounded. We've, we've been there, haven't we? There's something, you have done something in your life. For many folks, it's public speaking. Not something that I have a problem with. But for a lot of folks, it's public speaking, right? Or something happens, and your heart pounds, and your knees shake. Gentlemen, I know some of you remember that first date you asked a girl out on right after you had gotten your driver's license. And you, you quaked. Your heart pounded. Saul's, Saul's being overtaken. With, he's not just a little afraid. The, 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 the adrenaline, the, the, the everything has been dumped into Saul's, Saul's system, and, and he's shaking. But, you know, this is not unique to Saul, as we just saw, right? We all live, have fears, but... But many of us have not the, the little fears of asking someone on a date or having to bring bad news to someone, but, but bigger fears. We're afraid for our future. That's what Saul's afraid for here. He's afraid for his future. We fear for our future. We fear for financial ruin or health problems or others' opinion of us or death itself. Sometimes when life isn't going the way that we think it should, we're afraid that it's always going to go that way. Sometimes when life is going really well, what our fear is is, well, what's coming around the corner? We know fear. One of the reasons that Saul is afraid is because God is withholding any information and any guidance from Saul. The prophets are silent. Saul's dreams have run dry. God is quiet. And so he goes to this witch, this medium. And even though he had eradicated all of these people from the kingdom, even though he knew that it was wrong, even though he knew that it was demonic, he still goes to her because he's, he's so impatient and he's so fearful. And she is concerned and he assures her, Saul assures her that God's judgment is nothing to worry about. That takes a little bit of, I think the Yiddish word is chutzpah. And what is Saul thinking when he, when he tells her, oh, the judgment of God is nothing to worry about? Most likely he's not thinking at all, actually. Most likely he's just acting. And so, and so, she says, okay, well, who do you want to talk to? And he says, well, I want to talk to Samuel. And she says, now what now? And he goes, Samuel. Now, 
a little piece of advice. Well, the first piece of advice is this. Do not engage in satanic and demonic activities. That's my first piece of advice to you. My second piece of advice to you is if for some reason you disregard my first piece of advice, don't call on a prophet of God to be the one to come and talk to you. I mean, what did Saul think was going to happen? I mean, Samuel had never been reticent to tell Saul what he thought. And so they call Samuel up. They call Samuel up. And that is when Samuel tells Saul that the end is coming. Samuel calls, comes to Saul, and he says, look, okay, I, I want to make sure I, I've got this right. God has turned from... God has turned from you because of your disobedience. God has become your enemy. And instead of going to God and reconciling with God, you've made a deal with a demon, summoned me, and are looking for my help. The only thing that Saul can sort of say to that is, well, that, that about sums it up. And Samuel says, okay. And then he gives that, that one piece of, of thing, of advice, of, of that, that one thing you never want to hear from a, from a ghost. Don't worry, I'll be seeing you real soon. You and your kids. See, the answer to Saul's problem was not to be found in this magical ceremony. The answer to Saul's problem was to be found in the much more obvious but also much more difficult path of repentance. Samuel reminds Saul that he never really owned up to his disobedience. He's never repented. He's never sought to reconcile with God. And what Samuel says to Saul, Samuel says to all of us, a repentance that does not change your life will not save you from death. A repentance that does not change your life now will not save you from death in the future. See, Saul is seeking God because his life is in crisis But the real crisis in Saul's life is that he has no relationship with God. Saul thinks that his crisis is that the Philistines are coming. The real crisis that Saul is facing is that God is coming for Saul. Now, let me, let's, let's make sure that we just is clear. Is it wrong to call on God in times of crisis? Absolutely not. <laughs> the, the Psalms are full of calling on God in times of crisis. The danger comes, however, when we, when we see God as a vehicle to avoid pain and suffering or even hell and not to see God as the sovereign ruler creator of the universe who wants relationship with us. If our motivation in seeking God is simply good things for ourselves, we do not understand repentance. 
And so what Samuel says is going to happen to Saul happens to Saul, as we read. It's, it's, it's sort of a, a sad, depressing death, isn't it? His sons have been killed. Say what you want to about Saul, but they're still his sons. His sons have been killed. His men are being slaughtered. He has been shot multiple times by arrows. He is without hope. And so he he asks his armor bearer to kill him. And when the armor bearer won't, he utterly despairs and kills himself. I'm reminded as we read that story about Saul of another individual who found himself alone and isolated and in an act of utter desperation, kills himself. Judas. So isolated. So separated from God. That they despair. Utterly. You know, Saul had had such promise. Israel had looked to him to give them triumph over their enemies, to guide them with courage and wisdom. And here in times of trouble and here at the end, Saul shows himself to be a coward. His enormous potential ends in a life of disappointment and a death without hope. See, Saul's problem was not the Philistines. Saul's problem was not Goliath. Saul's problem was Saul. God could have conquered all of Saul's enemy. God promised that he was going to conquer all of Saul's enemy, but Saul refused to trust God. He trusted himself more than he trusted God. There are three truths that Saul's death points us to. Three truths that can serve as a warning to us. The first is this. Saul kept up religious practices without ever knowing God. Saul accomplished a lot in his life. He fought battles against the Philistines. He eliminated the witches and sorcerers of the land. He even prayed to God earnestly. Scripture tells us. He, 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 he checked all the boxes. He, he was in, in our parlance to, to, to modernize Saul's life. Saul was the church-going man who volunteered regularly and even went on mission trips. He was us. Yet despite all of his religious activity, Saul lacks two essential elements to actually knowing God. The first, Saul 
lacked trust in God. Every time he's given an opportunity to obey, he follows his own path instead of God's. He's never fully convinced that God's ways were trustworthy, that he could never fully yield his life over to God. In 1 Chronicles, where we read that Saul did not inquire of the Lord. In all of his prayers, in all of his consultation with Samuel and the other prophets, Saul was after a solution, never after the Lord. Many of us follow that same pattern, don't we? Many of us think that we can just exchange one thing that we're asking for the results for for God and just keep asking for the same results. We, we try and turn God into a supernatural cosmic vending machine. If I put the right amount of things in, God will give me what I want. But if the affections and desires of our heart do not change, if we do not trust God and what God wants for us and then what God wants for us is for our best, then we do not know him. This lack of trust for Saul, and often for us, stemmed from a second element that was missing, satisfaction in God. God's never enough for Saul. So God tells Saul that he should not enrich himself off of the Amalekites. And so, what does Saul do? Instead of destroying the Amalekites like God tells him to, he keeps the riches for himself. When, when it becomes clear that David is going to be the next king of Israel, Saul responds to God by saying, being your anointed is not enough. I need to ensure that I never have to share in the glory that I am due. Trust in God, satisfaction in God. These two elements are indispensable if we are going to truly know God. And Saul teaches us that those who do not grasp these two elements do not know God regardless of how much religion they do. Our spiritual problems can be traced back to a lack of trust or a lack of satisfaction in God. Either we do not know God's gracious love for us or we do not grasp its value. When Jesus sends people away at the last day, Matthew 7 tells us that his response is not going to be, you didn't perform enough for me. His response is going to be, I never knew you. To know Christ is to know how he feels about us and to rest in his work and be satisfied. So first, Saul kept up religious practices without ever knowing God. Second lesson is this, Saul never learned how to truly repent. Repentance is hard. True repentance is really hard. So we have to ask ourselves, do we do we know how to repent? We might we might feel terrible, we might vow to change and yet we may still be like Saul and missing the heart of true repentance. There are certain things that we can see in Saul 
to help us identify false repentance from true repentance. First, false repentance often manifests in rationalization or blame shifting. Okay, I did wrong, but... We've probably all been on the receiving end of an apology that was like that, right? Well, I did wrong, but... I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that most of us have been on the giving end of an apology like that on a time or two. False repentance often manifests in rationalization or blame shifting. Well, I did a wrong thing, but I did it for a good reason. Or I did a wrong thing, but it's not really my fault. Second, false repentance manifests itself in unchanged behavior. Real repentance is not shown in an emotional catharsis. Although that can feel really nice. No, true repentance is is shown in a life that looks different. Yes, our mouth must confess Christ, but we must also believe in our heart. When we believe in our heart, it changes our behavior. Third, false repentance produces the wrong kind of sorrow. You know this, right? Those of you who have had kids or been a kid, which I'm pretty sure covers all of us. How many times when you're caught, did you not feel bad that you did the thing, you felt bad that you got caught? We can feel true sorrow at getting caught. But false repentance doesn't, doesn't, true repentance doesn't produce the sorrow at getting caught. A, A true repentance causes the kind of sorrow that grieves because it has hurt an eternally loving, kind, good, perfect God. Fourth, false repentance sometimes manifests itself in conditional obedience. God, if you do this thing for me, I will do this thing for you. We all have heard stories like that. We probably, a lot of us probably have stories like that in our family. Well, your great-grandpappy was a drunk, but one night he was caught in a thunderstorm on horseback and he called out to God and he said, God, if you save me from this thunderstorm, I'll never drink a drop again. And he got home and he never drank a drop again. Anybody have a story like that in your family? Okay, I know you do. You don't have to admit it. I do. Right? We've all heard that story. We all know that story. We've all maybe participated in it. God, if you get me through this, I will do X. This is conditional Obedience, that's not true repentance. Y'all, you may not understand this, but God cannot be bought. Fifth, false repentance manifests itself in partial obedience. This is very closely related to conditional obedience. Partial obedience is the fact that we think we can follow God in some aspects of our lives, but not all. Men, Can you be mostly faithful to your wives? No, would be the answer to that. You can't be mostly faithful to your spouse. You're either faithful or you're not, right? Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. 
The third lesson, the most important lesson is this, that Saul died a sinner's death. Saul died as a sinner's death. Saul died as all sinners do. He was hung up in shame on a wall. He was forsaken by God. The Philistines mocked God at Saul's death because it appeared that they had conquered Yahweh's king. Here was Saul, stripped of his armor, displayed ignobly for the whole world to see. Without God, death truly is a tragic end to life. But in Saul's death, there was a, a glimmer of hope. And the glimmer of hope was this, that, that, that another king was coming. One who was being prepared for the role, even as Saul was in his downward spiral. Silently in the shadows, God had been preparing a man named David who would bring salvation to the nation in the wake of Israel's moment of immense shame. David's ascension to the throne teaches us how a later king, God's ultimate king, Jesus, would take the throne. Jesus, like David, assumes his throne only after the faithless ones have stirred up shame and rejected God. The part of Saul is played by us. Humans who refuse to fully trust and delight in God. And like Saul, we're condemned to die the death of a sinner. The difference... However, between David's kingship and Jesus' kingship is this. David did not die for Saul. Jesus died for us. Jesus dies the shameful death, hung up on display for the whole world to see. The enemies of God triumph at his death, mock God. Jesus was killed like Saul, so he could reign like David. This does not make sense to our modern, contemporary sensibilities. Didn't make sense when Jesus did it either. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I preach Christ and him crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, confusion to the Greeks. not just a stumbling block to them then, it's a stumbling block to folks now. Bart Ehrman once said, the secular atheist New Testament scholar at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, Bart Ehrman once said that if Jesus had brought peace on earth, I'd believe he was who he said he was. See, what people fail to see is that our deepest problem in the world is never the Philistines. It's never Goliath. It's never out there. We don't need peace on earth in regard to famines or poverty or nuclear weapons. The peace on earth that we need is the peace within each of us. The peace on earth that we need is the peace that's brought by a Savior who can remove the spirit of Saul that is lodged in every heart of every single one of us. And until God deals with with the sin within us. No government, no nonprofit, no entity, however smart and resourceful and good they are, will bring peace to our broken world. The 
The world desires a savior. The world calls out for a savior, but the savior they desire is a savior like everyone else has. The savior they desire is a savior like Saul. But God cannot and will not build his kingdom and fill it with people like Saul, like us, who refuse to acknowledge God as our king. God's salvation is much more radical than that. God's project is to create a new people altogether. Jesus can and will solve all of the problems out there. But before that happens, he has to solve all of the problems in here first. Before David can sit on the throne, Saul must die. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be victory in Jesus.